we heard from Greg last week about the rich young ruler. And, and I just want to kick off from, from talking about that a little bit more. Um, it's in three Gospels, which I think at a starting point has to be highly significant. You have something coming up in three of the Gospels. So it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, it's sort of found in, 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 I'm not going to read the whole thing, Matthew 19, if you're wanting to look at it, follow it, um, 16 to 26. But here was someone that came to Christ, and he, he had riches, he had position, and he had respect. It's always called the rich young ruler, right? But he was unfulfilled and empty, listen. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? So I think he recognized that Jesus was someone who lacked nothing. And he asked what he should do to get this life that Jesus had. You see, in that moment, there is a powerful moment, and it's a powerful question. Despite the fact that he might have had the wrong idea of what, what the solution was, he was in the moment recognizing that Jesus had something that he didn't have. It had so much potential for life, that moment, didn't it? He was asking the right source, and he was admitting he lacked what that source had. Have we been there? Have we truly known our need of him and asked those sort of questions of the Lord? So what's happened then? Has Jesus spoken? Have we heard? Have we obeyed? Has more freedom in life come? That's the question. And I sense in what the Father was speaking to me last night that, and I'm sure this has happened to all of us, that sometimes we get an answer that's hard to swallow. And so we end up regretting asking the question. Um, and... The worst thing is that we end up walking away grieved. That's what happened with this young man. He went away grieving. Do you think for a minute that that's what Jesus wanted? We know this for him, don't we? Man, it's easy to have these judgments about this man that we see. So why don't we apply it to us? See, we know that Jesus wanted him to be set free from the bondage to so many things. It's the same with us, isn't it? Jesus longed for him to come into the life and freedom that he himself was walking in. Jesus loved him and wanted him to be free to love him back with his whole life so that God could truly give him that eternal life that had substance, joy, peace, power, and love that would outlast and outstrip anything he'd ever known. 
that was the life that Jesus was walking in. And he could see this young man wasn't walking in that. He longed to give that to him, to show him the way. He's longing to show us the way to come into that kind of life. Just the same. Jesus also knew the design of the Father that his children would only come into this life when they let go control of their own life. He had a reference point because he'd let go of his own life. Yeah? Philippians 2. He humbled himself. He gave himself up. Humbled himself to, even to death on a cross. He didn't hold on to equality with God. He gave his life up. You see, this love is meant to, and it can propel and compel us into the submission and the trust needed to lose our lives. Because he says, you know, if you find your life, you will lose your life. (laughs) If you lose your life, you will have life. That is the way that God has set it up. There can't be two of us on the throne of our lives. Yeah? You see, sometimes there's a blockage even right here. So Jesus commanded him to do something, right? And I think the force of the word and the command can have us running away. I think that there is something that needs to be smashed in modern man that says it's wrong for anybody to command anybody anything. I think God should suggest. I think think he should say, I'd like you to consider the possibility of loving me with all your heart and soul and strength. Just in your own time though, you know, you, you don't, you know, it doesn't really matter if you do or don't. That's what the flesh says. That's what the world says. And it operates from self-preservation. You see, something needs to trump that flesh because that flesh is, has got hold. It's got grip of us. It, everything about it does not want to die. Yeah? It can't submit of itself. It needs something bigger than itself. Therefore, we get a command. We get a command from the king of glory who commands and he brings with him the power of that command that arrests the flesh and is facing the flesh with something. So there's a confrontation. There was a confrontation with this rich young ruler. So something had to happen. It wasn't just a, we'll just not deal with it. It confronted. So when the command confronts the flesh, there's two things that can happen. The flesh turns and runs away, or the flesh bows and submits. And there you've got the starting point of life. So 
we gotta, we've got to realize this so we don't run from the, the source of life, even though it hurts, like Steph was saying, it hurts. It's going to confront. It has to. The, the sword of the Spirit pierces. <clears throat> it's got to judge the intents and thoughts of the heart. It's got to divide between soul and spirit because we can't figure that out. We can't sort this flesh problem out. And he knows. And in love, he set it up to bring us into life. But there's going to be a confronting. You see, the young man truly needed Jesus to see and direct He had been trying for years himself, and there was still something lacking. He'd been trying and striving. This is true of us all, isn't it? If it wasn't, why wouldn't we all be walking around in the same life in the same manner that Jesus walked? if, If we don't need God to pierce our own hearts and to reveal what's in us and to speak that word, surely the logical conclusion would be that we'd be all walking around in the same life that Jesus had, right? We need this word. It is a word of life. It's a word of death to us, but life that we come into because we submit to that word. See, what Jesus saw was not what the man saw, and it certainly wasn't what the people around him saw. The people around him, I think, probably you know, saw a good person who was doing good things. So if he was looking for the sense of, am I on the right track or anything, he could, at least, he could feed off a lot of people saying, yeah, you're doing great, you're doing great, you know. So, so it doesn't pay to get our cues off other people, right? But what did Jesus see? He saw that he was God of his own life. He saw that he was childish, he was selfish. He was self-focused and he was most of all in control of his own life. And he wanted to add something to his life to get what Jesus had. And, and that can't happen. Jesus was living in the realm of truth. <laughs> and... That realm can't have this flesh with God stuck on it. It it doesn't work. And Jesus was living in the reality of a a life laid down that, that he only ever did what he saw his father doing. Even Jesus, the son of God, never initiated anything. His life flow was, was God in him. He, we heard about him operating out of function. He was relying on his own means, and that was his security and his source. He was on the throne of his life. You see, at the very root and foundation, his operating system was wrong. It wasn't just something was slightly out up here. It was a root issue, a foundation problem. He wasn't rooted in love Love for God, love for others. He was rooted in flesh. 
and the flesh was trying to do the things, but it wasn't, it, it didn't have its source. It was living separated from, trying to be like, but it wasn't one with God. It was separate from God. You know, the beautiful thing in the Mark version of this um, story, Mark 10, 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked deep into his soul and poured out his love. This wasn't a look of approval. Oh, good boy, you've been following the commands. (laughs) I don't think so, because the... His love is not, God's love doesn't pour out on us because we are worthy and we are a, a subject that has proven ourselves worthy of his love, right? God's love pours on us because that is his character, that is his nature, to love the unlovely, to love the unworthy, to love those that haven't satisfied his commands, I can imagine Jesus in that moment thinking, brother, I see you before me in the future. I see you as my precious bride. I love you so much that I left heaven to come down to die for you. I have you in my heart. And if you'll just let go in this moment and trust me by obedience and following me to know me, you're going to have such treasure that you've never known. That treasure will be me. And all things of life, beauty, fruitfulness, and substance are going to replace the striving, futility, and emptiness that's your life now. He was loving him. And then he said, one thing you lack. Here it is. You've asked me, what, what's the thing that I lack? Here it is. And he says, go sell everything you have Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Something needs to be shed. Your eyes need to see a different treasure and then you follow me. Okay, so this is not prime. We get so caught up with it, it's all about money. It's about his heart, the substance of his heart, the the resource of his heart. Right in that moment was the power of love and the potential to surrender control and enter into relationship with him and a whole new way of walking life. Steph testified to the life that has come through the surrender. We see in this young man what surrender or lack of it can do. How sad he went away grieving. He had no sight of the treasure that Jesus spoke of. He just saw what he was familiar with in the flesh. Now that can sometimes happen. God calls us to something. We actually can't see it. Yeah? But you see, even in that moment, even if he couldn't see this treasure that Jesus was talking about, he could have trusted the man. And sometimes trust is the gap. You know, we trust because he is trustworthy. We trust because Jesus is the one that is demonstrating this life. And if he said something and 
and he's the one in the life, and he has called me to do something, I'm going to trust him. It's the same when God calls us to do something we don't understand what it is. That the, the gap is going to be bridged by our walking in trust. And then the knowledge and the revelation of that will come and then we start walking in faith because we now see it's revealed in us. But if we are waiting here to have it all revealed and then we will follow, it won't happen because this trust thing is something that is a letting go of our understanding, letting go of our leaning on our understanding. So he had a possibility to do that, and we have a possibility in those times. And it takes trust, guys. It really does. But, but God is trustworthy. He really is. He has proven his love to us, undeniably proven his love to us. Listen to this definition of Christian love. Christian love has God for its primary object and expresses itself, first of all, in implicit obedience to his commandments. Self-will, that is, self-pleasing, is the negation of love to God. That's pretty out there, isn't it? When we're talking about loving God with all, we're not talking about just having the gooey feeling. We're we're talking about the obedience, and yes, it's feeling. Yes, we feel, not all the time, but there is an obedience that that lays itself down and says, I love you, so I'm not going to follow self. I'm going to leave that behind, and I'm going to submit and surrender in this moment. You see, at that point, the decision, the actual heart of that man was truly revealed because it was self-will, wasn't it? So although he had boasted of following the commands and all that sort of thing, right there, you see the truth of the matter because he walked away from the command. You know, the most beautiful thing... Um, is what the power of this love has for us. Like I said, it's, it's got the capacity to compel us into what we don't yet know and um, to call us out of what we do know, yeah? Greg said the other week, In God's love, we're able to take the layers off. It's so true. You don't have to hold up any kind of, but I'm this and I'm this and, you know, I've got it all together. (laughs) Steph didn't stand up and say, I've got it all together and that's why I received from God. You know, in his love, we can be broken and receive the love just as much. Yeah? And in family, we, we are able to do that because his love is poured into our hearts and shed abroad amongst us so that we're able to walk with each other in our brokenness because every single one has to be broken, has to have this work done. None of us is higher or greater or whatever. 
The thing is, we'll never know what we're missing until we surrender. Steve had no idea what she was missing until she surrendered. It's so clear, isn't it? And I tell you what, from my own experience, every time that happens, man, you wish you'd done it earlier. It's like, whoa. So this week, as as I was seeking, what, what is it? What's your word for us now? There was, there was a verse that just ram, 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 ram. And it wasn't just the verse. It was, it was like the, where is that verse? So here's the verse. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, I know the verse really well, but I hadn't clicked. It was in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. And it was just like an explosion going off in me. So what is the chapter 13 of Corinthians all about? 1 Corinthians. Love. Okay. So we, we kind of hear it most commonly in weddings and stuff, which is kind of a shame in some ways because... It's so easy to interpret it as this kind of ideal. It's this ideal that, you know, we'll focus on love because these wonderful husband and wife are getting married and they really know, need to know about love and this is the ideal. So we'll put this up here and this is, guys, this is what you've got to strive for and everybody's in there who's been married for a wee while thinks, yeah, right, have fun with that, you know? And it's, it's, it's like, it, it's set up as this ideal that you are to strive for. But actually, that's not what it's about. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is about a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is my lover. He is the one I love more than anything else. And 1 Corinthians 13 describes him. It describes him. It describes this love that is not a fleshly love. It can't be in us as human beings unless he pours his love through us. It is completely outside of our possibility. We are, we are good at loving when things are going well some of the time. Sometimes we're not even very good at that. But as soon as something bad goes or something um, comes against us, forget about loving then. You know, or when we're stressed or we're tired or we're, you know, we're self-consumed. Forget about loving then. Interesting, isn't it? What would happen if we put God instead of love? Listen to this. God is patient. God is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. He never fails. See, the revealing of who he is is this love. He's got the power to compel us into the very surrender that we're needed because we fall in love. When you fall in love with someone, I tell you, You'll do anything. You'll do anything. 
I'm going to go over that in a minute. But let's go back to this middle verse that he lay on my heart, this thing about children. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So here's Paul. He's writing about the person of love. He's writing about the flow of love that has to come into all of what we do. He says that, you know, if you prophesy and if you, if you have words of knowledge, but there is no love, it's a clanging symbol. Why? Because it's never meant to be separated from the person of Christ. None of the workings of things, that, that's like the rich young ruler again, isn't it? Work, 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 work. But Christ hasn't, he hasn't surrendered and Christ is not the Lord of his life. So he's not flowing in the oneness of one unity with God. So that's what this means to me. And he talks about what remains. Love is the thing that remains. And in that, he's saying, I found something. I found someone. Because I found someone, I'm going to put something behind me. Childish ways. The way of talking like a child, the way of thinking like a child, the way of reasoning like a child. Because I'm catching something. Because the one I love is about his heart, is about maturing me into the mature man, the fullness of Christ. And if that's his heart, because I'm so in love with him, that's what is my heart. Let's think about some, some childish things, shall we? It's easy to do. First one that's, that comes to mind is the selfishness and self-focus, small-mindedness. I saw this um, interesting little, I thought it was funny. It was meant to be funny. Um, so this mother's saying that, my children asked me what it was like to be a mum. So I woke them up at two o'clock in the morning and I said, my sock came off. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But you know what? I think it tells us not so much about what it's like to be a mother, but it, what it's like to be a kid. Yeah? Um, to be honest, I think that's a fabricated story because no child would even think to ask their mother what it's like to be a mother. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> that's something that a mature person would ask. Yeah. Do we ask what it's like to be father to us? Do we ask what it's like to be one of the leaders that carries us? Interesting, eh? Selfishness is a sign of immaturity. What about comparing and jealousy? Your gift is bigger than mine. You know, it, all it does is show that there's a, uh, is a immaturity and there's a lack of revelation about our true identity as the bride. We're comparing. There is more to come into that will put that stuff as like so irrelevant, you know? 
And you know that as a parent with children, you've got two kids and they're fighting over who's got the bigger ice cream or something, or the bigger balloon, I wanted the blue balloon. You know, as a parent, you sort of think, oh, just grow up, will you? Do you know? It's part of childhood, yes. But it's not part of maturing as the body of Christ. So we have to throw it off. You know, we have to put it behind us. That was then, but this is now. There, there's three other things that I, I can ex, um, sort of illustrate, I guess, through um, teaching young kids as I do. One of them is doing the same thing, expecting change. Um, I had a conversation just this week, I think it was, with one of my students, and they were playing, so I'm a violin teacher for those that don't know, so they were playing this piece, and their fingers were landing out of tune, right? So they're landing out of tune, and then they were correcting, which is great that they were able to hear and to correct. But you see, if you keep on doing that, all you're going to do is train yourself to land out of tune, It's too late by then to correct all the time. Wouldn't it be better to actually listen, figure out which finger's going down wrong, and go back and correct it? So I went over them some things, some practice tools out of the toolbox that he could use, and then I said afterwards, hoping that he might have got it, because my teaching's so great, and uh, I said to him, So now what are you going to do this week? Because the goal is that your fingers are going to land in tune. And he said, will just happen. (laughs) Oh, man. See, it's childish thinking. I do the same thing and it's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. I don't have a great relationship with God, but it'll just happen. The other thing is making excuses. Man, I hear a lot of them. I haven't had the dog ate my um, music yet, but the, how many times is it that um, I left my music at so-and-so or, um, oh, a really good one is leave your, leave your violin at school. And then you think, when did you have your violin at school? That was Orchestra Friday, and this is, f- you mean you haven't done, it hasn't gone home, no practice Oh, now you're really revealing something. This is constant. The the one that really, um, really gets me is that mum didn't put it by the door so I'd remember to take it out. Oh, man. So it's like, who's learning the violin? You or your mum, you know? Oh, far out. So this take, not taking responsibility is a sign of childish behaviour, isn't it? Yeah, blaming someone else. They... They didn't do it. Grandma didn't bring her thing for the lesson, you know? I hear it all the time. But it's childishness. You know, someone didn't ring me and I was feeling upset. Or someone didn't get the idea that I might have needed some help. Well, maybe go and ask, you know? Maybe take some initiative. Take some responsibility. As, as Greg was sharing at Family Dynamics last um, yesterday, you said, Matt, cultivate your own garden. Don't expect someone to come in and cultivate it for you. They will cultivate it with you, but they won't cultivate it for you. Yeah, our prime responsibility is to cultivate our own relationship with him, not just for our sake, but so that we can give out and help others 
to cultivate their gardens. Precious stuff if you can get online and listen to that, what was happening yesterday. There's an intentionality that has to come in. That was another key word we heard yesterday. You have to be intentional about the things. My student has to be intentional to practice a certain way. He has to listen, analyze, and redo, and then repeat and repeat. And I give them the tools, you know. Tic-tac on the stand. Do it four times exactly right, you get a tic-tac, you know. There are things that you can help, but the, the person has to do it themselves. No one can do it for them. Here's the beautiful one. So, he says, when I became a man. Now, let me just think about this. It's not going to take very long. What does a man want that would cause him to leave behind childish things? What's one thing that would motivate a man to grow up? Not the car, Chris. <laughs> Come on, guys. Thank you. Oh, right. He's got to put boyish things behind if he falls in love with a woman. Right? It's going to cause some things to happen. So we see in this the way that God has set it up, that the love relationship is the propulsion. It is the the compelling for us to leave behind, right? Yeah? So in the natural, he's not going to be consumed with himself. I've seen this play out in my sons. Totally not consumed with himself. He just wants what she wants. Yeah, wants to spend time with her, pursuing her, getting to know her, finding out what she loves the most. It involves late nights and early mornings. He spends his resources on her. It all goes on the woman, I tell you. What does she like? Oh, she likes that. Oh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna spend a bit of money. I know I've got something in the bank account. I was gonna save it for a car, but no, 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 I'm gonna do it here. Yeah. He, they go without so that she can have. Always. Darling, you you have that last piece of always. What's happening over here? (laughs) 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 I love it. (laughs) If only we can be as passionate about pursuing what he wants and giving, going without so that he gets uh, our substance. Our life, that's what it means. If, if only we were so passionate. This is the thing. He com- love compels us. So we're going to be at prayer meetings in the morning. There's no, no question about it's too early to get up. Because we're passionate about him. We're going to be up late praying and seeking him. 
writing messages because we love him and we love his people. We're going to get to know, back in the natural, those that are precious to her, her family and her friends, and they become his. It's very intentional, isn't it? But it's not like planned. It's just like this heart compels, and, and then we do it, yeah? It's not like, oh, today I'm going to give this much to my beloved because I love her so much, and then I'm going to spend this much time. It's not that. It's compelling. The love for him compels us. So what is God passionate about? What's his love and desire for? Our truly knowing him and loving him will find us consumed not with ourselves, in our own lives, but his purpose in our lives will be there to serve his purpose in his life. Yeah? Our time will be organized around his desires. His desire primarily is for his church. His plan has always been that his church would hold the substance of who he is, would demonstrate the substance of who he is, and that others would be added to her. He's preparing not just a church for this time and you know, and then what happens. From the beginning of time, he saw his church as the bride that would stand next to his son. This is serious stuff. This is serious love. And those purposes and that heart that he has, has, as it's meant to, has the power to completely catapult us into a different way of living. Because it's now no longer about me. That's why Paul says, it's no longer I that live. But Christ that lives me and the life I now live, I live by faith in him. Why? Because he, he had caught the love, caught the purpose. He wants to build us. He wants us to be transformed. We're actively engaged with that process, we're praying. A couple of my darling friends this week, I asked them to pray for me. It's funny, you know, the response, oh, you'll be all right, but it's not about me being all right. It's, it's totally not. I wasn't asking for prayer because I need, I need your confirmation that it's all going to go well. I'm asking for prayer because nothing is wrought in God without prayer. And without his spirit. And, and I, I long for us all to be praying towards what God is doing in the moment. Then we're walking as one, aren't we? Yeah? We're coming into this every joint supports, the ligaments supply. Everything is happening as one body.
So the ongoing power of knowing the person and to surrendering to him causes us to walk in the same life, in the same love, in the same manner. So what you find with that, you leave the childish things behind. That's not what gives you life. It just puts you in a position to receive and be transformed. Yeah? Because you can give your body up to be burned. But without love, it is nothing. It profits you nothing. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. So it, it's, it's not that that's going to do it, but it will position you into a place where it's now not about me. It's not about my childish ways. It's about Christ and what he is doing, what he is building. It is about me being transformed. It's about his kingdom being built in me and in his body. And everything that is his desire and his purpose is why I'm here on the earth. That is my whole reason for being. Freedom. We come into the whole purpose why we are here. Like how good does that get? How many people spend their lives f- trying to figure out the purpose for life? There it is, I've just told you. It's true. I'm totally fulfilled because I'm seeking his purpose. <laughs> my life is, is to serve his purpose. Whatever that looks like, I don't care what it looks like, it's irrelevant. So we leave to cleave, and it's all about maturity. I just want to finish with this last little thing about oneness. See, oneness was the reason that Adam desired to to cleave, wasn't it? (laughs) She came from me, it says. She came for me. And, and therefore, I will leave and I will cleave. Have you ever thought that oneness is the reason why God desires us to abide in him? We came from him. And he longs to be one with us. That is powerful. It is powerful. 